Good morning. I think uh, a personal introduction is in order. My name is Matt. It's good to see you all. I, I say that in jest, but also kind of seriously. If you're new to the congregation in the past couple of months, or maybe you're just visiting today, my name is Matt. I pastor here at Solid Rock, and it is really, it really is a joy uh, to be back after almost a two-month sabbatical. I joked with Austin last week that after eight Sundays not preparing or delivering a sermon, I think I forgot how. And I say that in jest, kind of, but also a little bit seriously. And I don't think it helps that today is my, my first Sunday back in the pulpit is Transfiguration Sunday, where we're dealing with that story in the Gospels, a confounding story that takes our minds to an equally perplexing story in Exodus involving Moses, where he meets with God on the mountain and returns with his face shining. So those two things coupled together, my absence for a couple of months, not being in the routine, and a perplexing text like that, my hope is that you will grant me some grace today to ease back into this part of my role. But I actually did want to spend some time today exploring our scriptures a bit, but also weaving in just a few reflections from my time away. Um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, just to let you all into that process a little bit. And admittedly, these are just some initial reflections as I know that I'm going to be processing this incredibly meaningful time away. I'll be processing it for months and years to come, and we'll share more reflections at later times. But since this is my first week back with you, I did want to share a few reflections, which I'm hopeful will be an encouragement for you all in your walk of faith as well. I, I would be remiss not to first thank the board um, for allowing me that grace. Uh, thank the pastoral care team as well as the rest of the staff and, and all of you as a part of the congregation for allowing it and making it possible. Uh, our family feels very encouraged and refreshed um, and ready to get back to work. You know, last fall was a bit of a whirlwind for me personally, for the board, for the rest of the staff, as we were planning for my absence um, with relatively short notice, all things uh, considered. Um, and in addition to some of those practical preparations here, I was also trying to prepare personally for my time away. And during that personal time of preparation, I found some thoughts from Pete Scazzaro to be quite helpful. I know some of you are familiar with his name. He's the author of the Emotionally Healthy series of books, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and so on. And he actually was the founding pastor of the church in Queens that Rich Velotis now pastors. Um, but I, I found some of his thoughts to be quite helpful. He writes quite a lot about Sabbath uh, in general, but also pastoral sabbaticals specifically. So going into the beginning of the year, I actually relied heavily 
on the framework that he uses as a means of moving into meaningful Sabbath rest. And the framework is really quite simple. It's just four words. I say it's simple. It's simple when you list the four words. It's much more difficult to actually implement them. But the four words are as follows. Stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. Stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. I want to explore this a bit as we look at a well-known psalm. In January, our family spent about eight days in Fredericksburg, Texas, uh, a small, quaint German town that we really love. It's about an hour outside of Austin. Um, and we spent our days there basically doing nothing. Um, we spent time hiking, we spent some time with some extended family and close family friends, but basically beyond that there was no agenda, which was great, and because there was no agenda, I had the ability to slip away from the family occasionally. I would walk just two blocks down from our bed and breakfast to this beautiful Catholic church to spend time praying and reading. It was a church that was built in 1861, which is the same congregation meets there, which is pretty historic for America, especially uh, a church that's west of the Mississippi River. Um, anyway, that's not the point. The point is that one morning, I slipped away, and as I was praying and reading there, I started my time in Psalm 27. And I, you know, I had a, an agenda to get through in that time of prayer, and I really couldn't get past this psalm where I started my time. I read it several times and spent most of the rest of my time that morning meditating on this psalm, especially with these themes of stop, rest, delight, and contemplate as the backdrop for that specific time of prayer and rest, but also that it entire two months. I want to read just the first few lines to get us started in this psalm, and then we're going to come back and spend some more time in the middle section of the psalm. But this is how it begins. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now I know that the psalmist here is not explicitly instructing us in this way, but I do think he is modeling something very important for us, that first step in the process of finding that Sabbath rejuvenation. The psalmist stops here to assess his situation honestly. And I think the model that he provides for the reader is an important one, even though the instruction is not explicit because we cannot assess our situation honestly and then begin to work through that situation without first stopping. Sabbath, as Scazzaro says, begins with 
stopping. And as we stop, we begin to let go of the illusion that we are in control. I think the psalmist models that, facing a lot of difficult circumstances. We let go of the illusion that we are in control or that we are indispensable, and instead we embrace our limits. We embrace our limits, which I understand is not a comfortable endeavor. It's not the most popular idea. I think the tendency for many, and I say many primarily for me, I think, my tendency is to resist or to try with all of my strength to overcome limits, not to embrace them. They are something to move beyond, not something to exist in. But I I think rest invites us to and depends upon our willingness to embrace our limitations, reminding ourselves that we can't do it all, that we can't complete all of the tasks, and that's okay. We, We were never meant to. It's possible for us to be so consumed with doing an action that is geared towards overcoming our limits that we neglect or minimize the beautiful, purposeful, the life-giving call of simply being. Being. But we can't even assess our situation. We can't even enter into proper being without first stopping, pumping the brakes a little bit. I want to jump down to the end of the psalm. We'll, we'll come back and pick it up where we left off in verse 4 in a moment. But th- this psalm that sort of became a north star for me during my time away, it ends, th- this incredible psalm of trust-infused praise ends with these words. After that very honest assessment in the first few verses, it ends with this, I believe. So, so there is this hope. It's, Pretty devastating news at the beginning, and it moves towards this hope. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And I think we actually find one of the keys to proper being in this really simple line Wait, wait for the Lord. We've already seen in this psalm in the first few verses, and we'll see in more detail in a moment, that the psalmist is not necessarily waiting or resting from a place of triumph or completion. No, it is a waiting in the midst of a wide array of challenging circumstances. And in the first few verses, we saw that they were circumstances that probably seem foreign to many of us in this room, although with the global events fresh in our minds of this past week, we are reminded that while these circumstances feel very foreign to most of us, it's the reality for many in our world even today, which is one of the incredible things about the Psalms, one of the reasons it's so important for us as the people of God to pray the Psalms even when they seem foreign, even when it feels like what what the psalmist is dealing with is not something that we are walking through. 
it reminds us that the people of God is much bigger than us, and there are people today that are facing these specific issues, and, and we are moved into a posture of prayer and solidarity with those who are suffering. And even as our, our minds are taken to those who are suffering in these ways and, and we are moved to prayer, I think the wide array of challenges that are voiced in this psalm might also help us recognize that even if these specific circumstances aren't our reality, this is still the means of becoming whatever we are facing in this moment. This is how we become the people of God. We wait for the Lord. Waiting, of course, is not equated with passivity. You know, Sherry encouraged us in this way this past December during Advent that the waiting that we are drawn into is one that expresses a deep-seated trust in and dependence on God, not a trust in my own ability to fix my situation in this moment, but a steadfast, as we sang this morning, a steadfast trust in our God. And what better way to develop that trust than to stop? It sounds really simple. But as we stop, as we remind ourselves of the beauty of our own insufficiency which probably seems like a strange thing to say, that our insufficiency and our limitations are actually beautiful, but I think they are because it's a part of what it means to be a human being. As we stop and, and look those insufficiencies and limitations in the face, we are drawn into a deeper trust of our God. What better way to remind ourselves of this than to stop and wait for the Lord? I've mentioned several times that it's easy to, to list these off, talking about stopping. That's really easy, but of course it is difficult for many to actually do, especially if we think some notion of success depends upon us not stopping. Stopping can also be very difficult if we haven't exercised the mental muscles that are required to stop. I know that sounds contradictory as well, that, that exercising mental muscles would actually lead to a place where we are halting activity, but I think it's true. First couple of weeks of my sabbatical, it was very challenging for me to mentally disengage. It was a struggle. And I think the inherent difficulty in stopping and ceasing activity was probably exacerbated by the fact that I haven't exercised some of those mental muscles in quite some time. And those atrophied muscles had grown accustomed to not disengaging. So it was this process of learning and, and trying to figure out how to move back to that place. The, the first week I was away, it sounds so silly even saying it, but it actually happened. I found myself one afternoon pacing around my house, thinking, oh, I, I forgot to do that. Oh, I didn't do this. I forgot to talk to this person about that procedure. And Nanette, had to have a stern comfort. Can I say that? 
I hope so because I already did. Nanette had a stern conversation with me. She said, you got to cut it out. You have to stop. Whatever ball you dropped, and you probably dropped a ball, whatever it is, it doesn't matter now. Somebody else is going to pick that up, and if they don't, it doesn't matter. It's going to be, and I think I knew that, but because of some of those atrophied mental muscles, it was difficult to make that translate into how I was living my life. And then last Sunday, I walked in to a bit, this building and saw everything that had been completed in my absence and heard all of the stories about how you all had stepped up and, and filled in gaps that I left and completed tasks that had become the bane of my existence, like storage rooms that were almost literally spilling out the, the door. And it would take the rest of our time to list all of the ways in which you all stepped up. Um, and, you know, in addition to the tremendous relief that that brought, when I walked in and saw things like the, the acoustic sound panels installed in this room, or my office that had been transformed from a mop closet into an actual office. If you didn't see my office prior to my departure, it probably isn't that meaningful to see it, but um, it was quite a transformation. Or the completion of the kitchen, which we are all going to enjoy today. Jared and Zach spent hours installing tile backsplash and finishing out that kitchen. and All of the cleaning and checking the mail and trimming bushes and all of those tasks, the, the tremendous relief that that provided for me was incredible, but I think more importantly than the relief that it brought me was the fact that it was a lovely picture of the collaborative community that is the body of Christ. A collaborative community comparable to that body image that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, which actually happens to be our text from the epistles today. Paul talks about all of these unique and small parts and pieces of the body that, when isolated from the body, seem almost insignificant, but their attachment to the body brings purpose, and we discover that those parts and pieces are actually indispensable. That those parts and pieces are in their sometimes very small ways, contributing to create a healthy, integrated, whole body. We, we've got to speed this up because we're just through the first of those elements. It begins with stopping. Stopping, which helps us focus on being rather than just doing to overcome limits and our insufficiencies. Eugene Peterson actually described prayer in a similar light when he said prayers are tools not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. And I think the same can be said for Sabbath rest. It is about being, becoming faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, being is the foundation for all of our doing. Any doing, any activity flows out of proper being, which is why this is so important for us as the people of God. Every time I stop and rest, 
This is one of the things that I think I'm discovering. Every time I stop and rest, I am reminded not only of my insufficiency and limitations, but I am reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if I drop the ball today, I trust that I am still a beloved child of God, and that is enough. When I come face to face with my failures or my weaknesses, I am still a beloved child of God, and that's enough. When I realize that I am not indispensable, that's okay because I am still a beloved child of God, and that is enough. And I believe that it is in waiting for the Lord, by stopping, halting, just to be, that we become aware again of the marvelous reality that is the gracious love of our God. Rich Velotis has said that Sabbath is one of the clearest signs of the gospel of grace. You intentionally accomplish nothing and God still loves you. And I found that to be true over the past couple of months. When we stop and when we remind ourselves of these fundamental realities, it is only then that we can enter genuine rest. Again, not just inaction or inactivity. In fact, rest may involve a variety of activities that restore and rejuvenate, but only from that place of rest can we then return to that fundamental aim that is delight, to delight in our God and in his creation. So I want to read the, the middle section of this psalm, the part that we haven't gotten to yet. This is how it continues in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So maybe even with our gospel reading, the transfiguration, coming into contact with the glory of God, with that in our minds, we read these words, your face do I seek. So we stop, we rest, we delight, and Scazzaro says we end with contemplation, to ponder the beauty, the love, the grace of our God, to seek the face of the Lord. Of course, these four elements 
are interconnected and can't be really isolated from one another, and yet I do think there's something to be said for the sequence in which they appear. Stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. Because delight and contemplation depend upon stopping and resting. We ponder the beauty, the love, the glory of our God, or as the psalmist puts it, we dwell being. We, we dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, inquiring in his temple. But in some ways, that is only possible when we have stopped, taken a breath, and truly rested. And then we are able to find those moments of unadulterated delight in our God and his creation. So I want to conclude where we started in our gospel text. And I don't want to stretch this point too far. But I think there's something in that story that can actually be helpful in this conversation for us. Today's gospel text was that confounding story of the transfiguration. This is Transfiguration Sunday. Even the word itself is a bit what do we do with that? It's not a part of our normal vocabulary, even for those who are steeped in the story of our Bible and, and spend time every week in church and with the people of God. It's just a bit unusual. And it is a wild story. We see Jesus going up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John to pray. Well, Jesus goes to pray. We, we find that pretty quickly the disciples go to take a nap. But Jesus goes to pray, and there's this dramatic change that takes place in Jesus, right? Even his face is changed, his clothing becomes dazzling white, we are told, and then if that wasn't wild enough, Moses and Elijah appear on the scene. It is a wild story, and yet there is something remarkable about that wild story that I think is perhaps important for us to consider in this conversation. Because it would be easy for us to assume well, a dramatic divine encounter like that, that is the point and that is the end of the, the story. That is what we live for. In fact, we, we see the disciples say, let's hang out here a bit, right? This is why we're here. This is the real stuff. This is the good stuff. Let's build booths, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and let's hang out in this moment of divine encounter for a while. But that's not what happens. So the, the story actually ends rather abruptly. There's a voice from the cloud that says, this is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. And then that's basically it. There's no point of application. There's not really any teaching or instruction from Jesus. His appearance, it seems, returns to normal. Moses and Elijah disappear. And then the next day, we find the disciples with Jesus back ministering to the crowds of people. In some ways, if, if we're looking in terms of practicality, it seems sort of like a pointless story. There's no explicit instruction. What do we even do with that as this story ends abruptly? But I think on some level, 
Even as we read the rest of the gospel story in Luke, as Jesus begins walking toward his death, what we are going to begin doing this Wednesday as we begin the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday, I think on some level it is the divine promise of presence in that encounter. So we think of the divine encounters both with Moses in Exodus 34 and this one in Luke's gospel with Jesus on the mountain. It is the promise of divine presence in that encounter that prepares Jesus for the road ahead, prepares the disciples for the road ahead. And I want to submit to you all, to us this morning, that it is the divine promise of presence that we find in the encounter with Jesus as we wait for the Lord. It is that promise of presence that prepares us as well for the road ahead. Whatever that road entails, whatever difficulty, whatever joy, whatever sorrow, Whatever tomorrow holds, the promise of God's presence with us is leading us into the future. Thanks be to God. Kevin, if you want to come up, we are going to stand and join our voices together in declaring our trust through song, and then we're going to share a meal together. But I'd invite you to stand and lift your voices. Let me say a prayer for us. Oh, God who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And let's lift our voices together today.